0: Okay, so uh, as we sit counting down the hours anticipating uh, Purim, I felt remiss to not do a topic that deals with Purim, which we're going to do. But beforehand, since this is a Parsha class, it would be wrong not to touch on the Parsha at all. So we're going to touch on the Parsha quickly. I'm going to share one quick thought on the Parsha and then we're going to deal with the Purim mission. After the Chaita Egel, after the sin of the golden calf, perhaps the greatest act of disobedience in human history, to cheat on God on your wedding night with Him um, and to build a golden calf an abandonment of the loyalty and fidelity to the Almighty Himself, Baruch, uh, Moshe approaches God and uh, prays. Moshe begs forgiveness on behalf of the Jewish people. And God provides that forgiveness. But in the context of providing the forgiveness, the Baruch, God reveals His 13 attributes. We recite them on a fast day like today. Um, this formula that if we invoke it, And we acknowledge and we recognize God's 13 unique, different aspects of compassion. Which we've studied, and it's for another time, what's the differences between these 13? Aren't they just synonyms for the word compassion? The answer is no. Each one is nuanced, each one is different. So God reveals them. But in the context of Moshe appealing to Hashem for forgiveness, if you look on page 150, Perik Lamedalad, Pasuk Tes, Moshe tells him, he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, God, then go among us, be among us. And why should you forgive the people? Why should you be willing to dismiss their egregious mistake and sin? Because they are an stubborn. am kish orif What's the definition of am kish stiff-necked. stiff-necked. Why do we describe someone as stiff-necked? They're stubborn, they're inflexible. Forgive our mistake, our error, and make us unakhaaltanu, make us your nachalah, let us inherit let us have a heritage of a warm and positive relationship with you. Now here's the problem. Moshe invokes this quality of the Jewish people in his appeal to Hashem to forgive them. The problem is that when Hashem displays his incredible anger at the people, and his desire to eliminate them, why, why does he do so? what's his reason? After building the eagle, Moshe smashes the tablets. Hashem announces that he's going to destroy the people, and why is he going to destroy the people? Because they are a Kishayorov um, because they are stiff-necked people. Stiff. so the very the very reason that God Himself provides why He's going to kill the people, is the reason that Moshe invokes. How's it possible? is a smart man. Why in the world would he think that the the very liability that the people display, the deficiency in their character that they exhibit can be transformed to be the very uh, noble quality through which he's going to earn forgiveness? Am Kishe What's going on? And I thought perhaps you can answer it based on the beginning of the Parsha. In the beginning of the Parsha, we have, you know, the there's so much that connects. Parshas Kisisa says, the half shekel today, we have the custom of bringing on Erev Purim, the half shekel, commemoration of the Jewish people would do it in the time of the Beisad Mikdash. The parasha is what we read on a fast day, and uh, so on and so forth. There's, there's so many uh, overlaps, so many connections. So in the beginning of the parsha Hashem tells Moshe, every one of the Jewish people need to bring a half shekel. Every, not everyone, but rather uh, from a certain age. Mi Benet Srim Vamala. 20 years and up. Rich person can't give more. An impoverished, indigent person can't give less. Everybody brings a half shekel. And what was the half shekel used for? The half shekel was used for the Korban and tibor for the sacrifices of the community. Now Moshe was not exactly sure about this half shekel. What's the deal with this half shekel? So Rashi quotes, that Hashem was herolo, Hashem showed him a coin that was on fire. And when Moshe saw the image of the coin on fire... He now understood exactly what this was and proceeded with the census, proceeded with the count, proceeded to collect the half shekel from each person. What's the image of the fire? So many of the commentators explain as follows. Fire is a very, very interesting substance. Fire is the ultimate symbol of potential. And how we use and channel the potential of fire determines whether fire is good or bad. Fire does not have an inherent, uh, intrinsic, internal, it's not good or bad by definition. It's determined by the person who uses the fire. If we use the fire to provide energy, warmth, or light, then fire is good. If fire is used to burn, to consume, to destroy, then fire is bad. So the value of fire is determined, not inherently, but the value of fire is determined, how? By the person using it. By the intent of the individual who's using it. So the Mepharshim explained the same is true with money. Money is not inherently good and it's not inherently bad. Money can be used to do incredible things. Just returned from APAC, over 13,000 people using their money to try to support people, candidates, politicians who are supportive of Israel and to make a positive statement. Money can be used very positively to help those who are downtrodden and poor and hungry, to contribute to all kinds of causes, to be able to advance our own learning. Money can be positive. And money, of course, can corrupt. And money can destroy. And money can be used for bribes. And money can be used to extort. And so on and so forth. Money can also be used for bad. Money, like fire, is a symbol of potential. It's not inherently or intrinsically good or bad. It's determined by the intent of the person who uses it. Use it properly, can be for the good. Use it improperly, it can be for the bad. Whether it's good or bad is determined by the person who uses it. It's not categorically good or categorically bad, but it's determined by the intent of the person and how they use it. The luchos. Which were holier? The first set of luchos or the second set of luchos? So Chazal tell us the second set of luchos are holier. Which is fascinating. The first set of luchos were made entirely by Hashem. Miraculously. The mem and the samech, the middle, suspended mid-air, even though it wasn't attached to the stone, written on both sides. Many, many features that were miraculous about it. Hashem fashioned the first set of luchos Himself. They were miraculous. Second set of luchos, Moshe participated. And yet it was the second set of luchos that were holier. Why? Because holiness is by the input, by the influence, by the intent of man. Meaning, purpose are contributed by the intent, by the kavana of man. What we give, what we provide. Come back to Am Kishe Perhaps Moshe's argument to Hashem was that stubbornness, being stiff-necked, is not inherently or intrinsically good or bad. It's determined by the person, the attitude, the approach, the intent of how we use it. We studied together the introduction to Chavez HaTamidim, a student's obligation, the Piazzat and the Rebbe, A brilliant, brilliant work. We don't have time to elaborate on everything that we studied. But he talks about it in there. And he quotes the case of Am Kishayorif. He doesn't use the example from our Parsha. But he says that human qualities are not categorically good or bad. And in our children, we shouldn't see any particular behavior as categorically good or bad. We should see it as latent with potential. And the onus is on us as the parent, as the teacher, to shape them and to channel this quality for the good. And he gives us an example, stubbornness parents try to break the stubbornness in their child. Child insists on tying their own shoe and you're late to get out of the house. Child insists on buckling their own seatbelt but you're late to where you're going. Child insists on whatever the case may be and it's driving the parent nuts. And what do most parents do? They try to break the stubbornness. Says the P.S.S. in the Rebbe, what a terrible strategic mistake. Don't break stubbornness. Embrace stubbornness as a virtue. Because when that child grows up, And that child is on the playground and that child is being offered some bad substance. That child grows up and goes to college as it's exposed to all kinds of foreign influences. If that child is stubborn, they will remain stubborn in their values. They will remain stubborn and steadfast in their lifestyle. Stubbornness is not bad. Stubbornness is wonderful. If you're stubborn to fight the valiant fight for noble, noble things. Stubbornness is wonderful. If you're not willing to sway or be flexible or influenced by uh, foreign influences that surround us, stubbornness can be a tremendous virtue. And perhaps that's what Moshe is doing. Moshe is using the very quality that God said was the reason He couldn't forgive them to say, No, Hashem. You don't get it. Not that Moshe would say that to Hashem. Say, No, Hashem. That very quality of stubbornness is not a reason to eliminate them. If you help me... Guide them. Turn them around. That stubbornness will be their greatest virtue. And could the Jewish people be here today if not for the stubbornness? Could we have survived pogroms, systematic attempts to eliminate us? Could we have triumphed over our enemies? Could we be here today with a sense of hope and faith and optimism in a future? Could we have a small state of Israel with its strong army in the face of all those who want to eliminate if not for our stubbornness, if not for being stiff-necked, Am is indeed a virtue and Moshe is successful in his appeal of the Almighty by reminding Hashem that Am is not by definition inherently bad but rather it's something which is potential if we can guide the people in the right path their stubbornness will be their, their saving grace, their greatest virtue. Okay, that's the Parsha. That's the Parsha. What I want to really spend our time on today is a topic about Purim. And that is something I think that is uh, often misunderstood. And that is the relationship between drinking and Purim. Alcohol and Purim. Is there a mitzvah to get drunk? Is there a mitzvah to drink? I want to clarify exactly this uh, issue. But then more importantly I want to get into why is there a relationship at all? We know there is. The fact that we're having the very conversation and asking the question means that there's a relationship between alcohol, wine in particular, and Purim. And why should that be? We don't find that with other holidays. Pesach, we have, of course, the four cups, but there the four cups come in the context of giving a chashivas, a sense of dignity and class, to the Pesach Seder. We don't have the notion of intoxication or inebriation when it comes to any other holiday. In fact, Judaism abhors drunkenness. Judaism categorically rejects the concept of alcoholism, of getting drunk. It's very opposite of our religion, of our notion. Because what's Judaism all about? How do we serve Hashem? We serve Him in our heart, but we also serve Him with our head. It's about being rational. It's about intelligence. It's about common sense. It's about the intellectual capacity to understand God's world. And if we're going to dull that sense, then we dull our very humanity. We dull our very godliness. And we forfeit our very divine nature. Within us, the divinity within us. So Judaism categorically rejects the concept of being intoxicated. Why should it be connected with the holiday of Purim? Source number one: The Gemara Megillah Daf says. And if you're listening on the recording, these source sheets will be on the should be on the website as well. We'll be singing it tonight, tomorrow. One of the great songs of Purim. A person is obligated to drink on Purim. To what extent? What's the measurement? I know the size of my sukkah. I know the uh, sound of the shofar. I know how much matzah I need to eat. What's the? How do you qualify the mitzvah to drink? So the Gemara itself tells us. Until you can't tell the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. The Gemara then goes on and gives us a interesting Incident, historical episode. Rabba and Rebzera, two great rabbis of the Talmud, were having the Purim Suda together. They became intoxicated, they got drunk. Rabba got up and what did he do? He shechted, he killed Rabzeira. The next day, Rabba prayed for mercy on Rebzera's behalf and miraculously revived him. He came back to life. So the next year Rabbi said to Rabb You know, we always have the Purim together. I assume you're coming. Amr Lehi said Are you out of your mind? You killed me last year. It took a miracle to revive me. Hatsella came. They had to work on me. They brought me back to life. Are you out of your mind? I think I'll find somewhere else to go for my Purim sutta. So, the first thing is what does it mean? He killed him the next day Lamachar? we, we don 't have any incident in medical history of a person being dead for a day, and they resuscitate him a day later. So what does it mean? He killed him and they brought him back a day later, and he says, "Are you kidding i can 't rely on a miracle." So the marsha makes an interesting comment here. idels source two Ki he is as difficult to understand to be taken literally. It doesn't mean he literally shechted him. He killed him. He took a knife to his throat. Where does one shecht? At the throat. So the throat, the image of the throat is a metaphor. It means that Rabbah, as often happens with alcohol, coerced Reb to drink. Come on Reb everybody's doing it. Everybody's having a little something. Just have a l'chaim with me. Have another shot. Can you keep up with me? Rabbi exerted peer pressure on Rabzerah to drink. And says to Maharsha, that peer pressure to drink is equivalent to murder. If one provides peer pressure and pushes someone to drink, and pushes someone to drink beyond the limits, lamus, and it's life-threatening, it's the equivalent of killing them. So the next day, he was still hungover. He had far surpassed the limit of alcohol. And Rabbi Daven for Abzerah, he was in the hospital with alcohol poisoning, alcohol over intoxication. And what happened? He was healed and he lived. To live means he was healed. So says the Marsha. It doesn't mean that he died and was brought back to life. It means he was on the brink of death. Unfortunately and tragically, how often do we hear on Purim and Simchas Torah ambulances being called, teenagers being rushed to the hospital for over drinking. So Rabbah pressured Rabzeirah. He drank too much. He almost died. Rabzeirah davened. He came back to life and he said, Thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll have my Purim Suda elsewhere. That's all we have in the entire Talmud of the notion of drinking on Purim. What can one glean from here? Rabbeinu Ephraim and many others, the Ram, the Meiri, and the Rivam? Look in source 2. The Ran quotes the Rabbeinu Ephraim. Says Rabbeinu Ephraim, look at the order of the Talmud. The Gemara quotes Rav and says, there's an obligation to drink on Purim. How much? So you can't tell the difference between Ammon and Mordechai. Then the Gemara tells a story of the consequences. What happens if you drink too much? Says Rabbeinu Ephraim, why did the Gemara tell us in this order? To teach us something very simple that don't drink Amparim. Ravah's order, the mitzvah to drink Amparim, was rescinded based on the episode of Rabbah and Rabzeira. So the Rana quotes Rabbeinu Ephraim, one of the Rishonim, who says, there is no mitzvah. Ravah's statement is rescinded. It's canceled. Why? Because look what happens when one drinks too much. Look at the consequences of drinking. The Me'iri says the same thing. By telling us the story, the episode, the anecdote of Rabba and Rabb it was the Gemara's way of saying, Raba's rule is off. Don't drink. Is it mentioned anywhere in Sultanah or in the Oh, we'll get to it in a moment. We'll get to it in a moment. So that's the approach of Rabbeinu Ephraim, the Rivam, the Ram, the Ram, the Me'iri, from the fact that the Gemara gives it in the order that it does. It teaches that Ravah's charge to drink on Purim no longer applies. Look at the risk, look at the consequences, stay away. That's a handful of the Rishonim. Other Rishonim disagree. The Chadash in Source 5 quotes others, "...Ein dimkein amai ahadadi." He says, if that year they learned not to drink because of look at the consequences... Then the next year, when Rabbah invited Reb why didn't Reb go? He had nothing to worry about. There would be no alcohol. There would be no drinking. They would just be eating a little chicken soup, a little kugel, a little uh, kasha varnishkes. What was he? What? That could be
1: deadly.
0: That could also be deadly. That's true. That's also. <laughs> that's also high risk. So why would he hesitate to go? Says the chadash. So it must be that the mitzvah remained in force. The Khsam Sofer of Moshe Sofer, also source number six, also says, what do you mean? Chronologically, when did Rava live and when did Raba live? Who lived first? Says the Chesam Sofer, Raba lived first. And nevertheless, Rava is the one who says, Chayi Livasume, that a person is obligated to get drunk. So Rava surely was familiar with the story of Raba and Reb because Raba lived first. And nevertheless, Rava said, Chayi Livasume. So the Chassam Sofa rejects Rabbeinu Ephraim, the Rivam, the Randam Iri, because he says, Rava live after Raba, and nevertheless says that you're obligated to drink. Clearly, the mandate remains in force. The Yad Afrayim, source number seven, also supports Rava. but a little bit differently. He says, <laughs> So, the Yad of creates kind of an in between opinion. He says, Yes, Rava says, drink on Purim, get plastered out of your mind. Then we read the story about what happens. Ravah and Rabzeira, you could die if you drink too much. So, therefore, what it means is drink, but not too much. ad yada means until you can't tell the difference. Does up does until mean until and including does until mean until and stop so the Yad Ephraim says until means until and stop only drink until you're a little happy have a little bit to drink but don't go past the line of submitting your your uh, stay sobriety conscious. stay conscious yeah stay conscious because after all the purpose is to be cognizant of the miracle to celebrate the miracle and he says, based on this, you can understand the Gemara lists the story the next year, but that doesn't preclude the mitzvah because we just adjust the mitzvah now to not drink too much. What's the halacha? How do we follow? Who's right? Rabbi the Ran, the Rivam, the Meiri? Or the prechadish sam so for the Adafrayim and others. Who's right? Is there a mitzvah to drink? Is there no mitzvah to drink? So the Shachanach quotes in source eight, Rav Yosef Karo, Chaiv inish haman Person is obligated to drink on purim until they can't tell the difference between cursed is Haman and Baruch is Mordechai So for now it seems that there is remains enforced the mitzvah to drink. Purim is associated with a mitzvah to drink. It's an obligation to have a lachaim. How much to drink? We haven't yet seen. But there is a mitzvah to drink. Now, le-av-sume, the Gemara used the Lashon of La'avsumei. Rashi says on the Gemara, source 9, specifically, Lehishtaker biyayin. You should drink wine. Why wine? Because the miracles came about through wine. They had the festive meal. Achashverosh hosted his meals to celebrate the fact that the Gula hadn't come. And then Esther holds her feast, where she invites Mordechai, uh, Achashverosh, and Haman. And it re- it repeats over and over in the Megillah that at these festive meals they would drink wine, since it came about the miracle through wine. We celebrate specifically through wine. So there are many who are strict to fulfill this Rashi, not to drink on Purim: single malt, blended rum, whiskey, rye, bourbon, tequila, vodka. What did I leave out? Or any of these other intoxicating uh, substances, but only wine. Some are f- careful to follow Rashi and drink wine. How far do you go to drink? Rabbi Salanter says uh, the Alei Shore, Source 10, Revolve quotes from Rabbi Saw Salanter. Rabbi right. Saw Salanter would get plastered beyond. And what did he do? When he got drunk to that level, reports the al Shore, Rabbi Surah would get so drunk that that entire day he was like a fountain, spewing chidushay Torah, spewing Divrei Torah, innovating new interpretations of Gemara and of Shas. But is that the proper thing for everyone else? If you're a Bishro Salanter, and by drinking to that level, you're going to be spewing Divrei Torah, an overflowing fountain of insights in Torah, maybe. But is that proper for everybody else? So the Rambam gives us a different measure. The Rambam writes in Source 11, Megillah, A person should have flesh, a flesh exuda, not hooks, and make a beautiful meal as you can afford. V'sho and drink wine, says the Rambam, at she ishtakir v'yirdim b'shechrus. How much wine? Until you chaf v'shlof, until you feel compelled to take a drimmel. You have a little bit of wine that you need a nap. If I open a nice bottle of wine at a Shabbos meal on Friday night, Shabbos lunch, some of you have been at my home, please God, you'll all be at my home if you haven't been yet. And we enjoy a little wine, at some point you feel, oh, I need to bench and get to the couch. I need to bench and get into my bed you have a little bit of wine now that's v- much earlier than shechruso shalot that's way before intoxication you had a little wine you had a lachaim. you enjoyed a social evening with friends and now you need a nap so the rambam says that's his measure for the rambam that's the measure the Beis Yosef, source 12 quotes the <speaking in Hebrew> The Yosef also quotes from the Rosh of the rush that drinking too much is not only not a mitzvah, it's a prohibition. Because what happens when a person drinks? They, they are susceptible to promiscuity and to embarrassing people and to violence and many, many, many Averas, Lashon Hara. So therefore, all one should do is, yoser If you normally have half a glass of wine, have three quarters of a glass of wine. If you normally have no wine, have a sip of wine. Drink a little more than you normally do, but don't come close, says the Yoruch quoted by the Beis Yosef, to drinking, to the point of intoxication, to the point of being drunk. The Yisod V'shorosh Shavoda, source 13, of a great Kabbalistic work. Also, interestingly, he says you fulfill this mitzvah after the meal. We normally think of you fulfill it throughout the meal. There's no, By the way, there's no mitzvah to drink tonight. Purim night, there is zero mitzvah to drink. Nobody, you cannot provide one source that you can show me that will say there's a mitzvah to drink on Purim night. Any source talks about associating alcohol with Purim, Purim day, and it's not to be drunk throughout the entire day of Purim, it's during the Purim Suda. And here the Yeshua Vashar Shavuot even says not during the Purim Suda, you finish your Purim Suda, you bench, and now you drink. How? They said levasume means have a little drink, have a You finish the meal, you kick back with friends, you've shared divray torah, you sang beautiful songs, you danced a beautiful puram dance, and now you make a lachayim, shine, and that's what you do after the meal. But that's why they said Liv sumay, to make a lachayim, not le They didn't create an obligation to get drunk. The great Ari, the great father, one of the great fathers of modern de Kabbalah of mysticism says one should drink a little, don't get drunk. The Gemara could never endorse getting drunk. That is the antithesis to Jewish values, to Jewish lifestyle, to Jewish practice. And therefore he concludes, Great caution, great vigilance needs to be exhibited to be careful. To be careful. So we see so far... That the Shulchan Aruch codifies, according to those Rishonim who say, the mitzvah to drink remains in force. We remain obligated to drink. How much? The Rambam says, until you need a nap. Tosvos has a different interpretation. How much do you drink? Until you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. Says Tosvos, according to Yerushalmi, Aru Brucha, Esther, Kola, Sharam Bruchim, Kola, Yehudim, that there's a Gematria. This is equivalent. And until you can't calculate the gematria, the numerical value, you've had so much to drink that doing math becomes a challenge, then you've had enough. When does it become hard to do the math? Long before being drunk out of your mind. A couple glasses of wine, you need a pen and paper. When you need the pen and paper to calculate, is Oror Haman and Baruch Mordechai, which are the equivalent numerically, is that true? To add up those numbers, when you've reached that point, that's when you've had enough. The of rum writes... Right? That's the Gemagan of Ram is, is expounding on Tosos, the Gematria. What? What do you mean? Ah, oh, Tosos added. In other words, Tosos is saying not just the difference between Haman and Mordechai, but also the difference between Zeresh and Esther and the Rishayim and all of the Yehudim, the Tzadikim. Um, the Marshat, Source 16 says, Look at Rashi and Tos. On Purim, people get lightheaded that they inebriated a little bit. You get lightheaded from drinking a little bit that you start acting silly. So when you're at the point of acting silly that you say I can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai, you're at enough. You don't need to be so drunk that you're lying in a pool of your own that you can't tell the difference. That's wrong, he said. The Ari was against it. Yisod Vashur Shavoda was against it. The Rishonim were against it. It means you had enough that you're in a silly state of mind that you say, I don't even know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And now... something about eating. For, see, the eating that yeah. something Maybe that's why, by the it's way. Yisod Vashor Shavoda said, you finish the meal, then you start drinking you because drink. you've got to have a little something in exactly. your stomach. Absolutely. Says the Ramah, source 17. So far we saw the Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Karo, the authority for Svardim, codifies that you have to drink what does the Ramah say the authority for Ashkenazim Source 17 says the Ramah who is he quoting writes here the Ma'riel, but he's quoting the Rambam the Ramah of Moshe Is the authority of Ashkenazic Jewry says what does it mean to drink on Purim enough that you need a nap And whether you're going to drink a lot, or you're only going to drink, you're going to touch your lips to some wine, whether it's a lot or a little, the critical thing is that you are L'Shem shemaim. That what you're doing is not an excuse to let loose and to let go. That what you're doing is not an excuse to be frivolous. What you're doing is not an excuse to be irresponsible. The key component, the most important determinant is that you are in a position to be doing what you're doing, only l'shem shemaim. The Mishneh the Chavetz Chaim, what does he endorse? Getting drunk as a skunk, or the Rambam drinking and taking a nap? Source eighteen. The Mishneh says the laasos, drinking enough until you need a nap. That is the proper measure. That's enough. That's all you need to do. That's what the Mishneh himself endorses. The bir alacha also authored by Rav Surah Kagan of Radim, the, Mish- the Chavetz Chaim, the Bura, writes in his B'er Halacha, in source 19, quoting the Chai Yadam, <laughs> Since the miracle came about through wine, that's why we drink wine. <laughs> but if you know that by drinking wine, you're going to skip washing, Ubracha, you're not going to bench. You know every year I hear of guys that were so drunk, they passed out, they wake up the next morning, they never dab in Rosh. They're going to speak inappropriately to people of the opposite gender. They're going to carry themselves and speak Lashanara, say things they shouldn't say. So again, you see this prevalent notion that There's no source about getting so drunk that you lack control, that you act irresponsibly, you're getting so drunk that things are out of hand. Any obligation association with drinking is within boundaries. So you drink enough that you take a nap, drink a little bit so that it's more than you normally have, but never drink to the point of losing control. Source 20, the Al-Ashur, who had quoted Yusuf Salanter, who indeed got drunk, now writes, Yeah, if you're your Yisrael Salanter, if you're an Adam Gadol Ma'od, if you're a great person, if you're that level of discipline, of self-control, of lifestyle, of righteousness, of virtue, you can get totally drunk. But Anachnu says Rav Shlomo Volbi, the great mashkiach who passed away, unfortunately, but it was the mashkiach of the previous generation, who himself was unequivocally an Adam Gadol, but nevertheless ca- categorized himself as b'nei Adam ketanim. We who are so small, ketanim Seinu vaavodaso, small in our Torah knowledge, small in our worship of Hashem, dai lanu gam Les basem yosem milimudo, dein tsarach le'shtakir kolkach. We, are so small we should just have a little to drink and the drinking should get us to a level of being high, of being a little bit uh, a little elevated to the point that we can feel the greatness of the day and God forbid not turn it into a day of silliness and a day of wastefulness (coughs) So why do we do it? What's the connection? So to summarize the first part, is there a mitzvah to drink? Clearly there's a mitzvah that connects drinking to Purim. How do you qualify that mitzvah? Everybody qualifies it by saying, drink a little bit. The Rambam says, drink a little bit until you take a nap. And the Ramar of Moshe Islis says, that's what you should follow. And the Mishnah Berurah of Chaim says, that's what you should follow. Drink enough a glass of wine that you need a nap. Others say, even if that's too much to you for you, Drink, have a sip have half a glass have a little chayim touch your lips to some wine why? why? we mentioned earlier wine and a holiday what's the connection? so the Bir Lach of the Chavetz says source 21 All the miracles took place around a mishta a festive meal with wine Beginning with Vashti. Vashti refused to come and parade in front of Achashverosh. She was executed. In her stead, Esther was appointed queen. Esther held these festive meals, and it was there that she revealed her identity to Achashverosh. It was Haman's downfall. So that's why we have a concept, that's the Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim's suggestion of what's the connection between Purim and alcohol and drinking is the miracles took place around a festive meal. We therefore exhibit, we therefore emulate a festive meal to commemorate those miracles. We do it by eating delicious kreplach and hamantashen and by having a lachayim on a little bit of wine. That's his reason. But I want to share with you three more reasons. Rabbi Blau, source twenty-two. Basitzchak are the journals that Yeshiva University produces every year. It produces a volume of Khidush Torah. This is an article by Rabbi Blau. He says Karasi Bashem Rifshlamazaman Arbach, he read in the name of Rav Shlomo Shaaf Yehudim. in the in the um when Mashiach comes, all of the minor holidays are going to be nullified, with the exception of Purim. Purim will continue to be observed prat But Rav Shalom Azam and Arbach said there is one detail of Purim that will change. We are going to continue to observe Purim. The Megillah, recalling the story. But one thing will change. She bimaz ha-Mashiach lo n'tzitarak l'shtiyas ya'in. Lo n'kayim ad lo yoda. She bizmaneinu she yesh tzoros ra'abas akla Yisrael yesh tzorok b'shtiyya lo urara simcha b'kirbeinu. Rav Shlomo Zaman apparently said that why do we drink on Purim today? Because what are we going to do? We're going to sit and celebrate the story of a triumph over a Persian man who wanted to destroy us in 2012 while we are listening on TV to the words of a Persian man who wants to destroy us? How could you possibly be happy? How could you possibly celebrate? How could you possibly experience joy when you recognize that the very same threat 2,500 years later faces us as Prime Minister Netanyahu brilliantly, subtly communicated by delivering a Megillah to the President that there remains a Persian man who wants to kill us. So therefore, therefore, we drink. We have a L'chaim to be able to relax a little bit, to put our worries aside and for at least a couple hours of the Purim so to not be thinking about Iran and Ahmadinejad, but to think about Persia thousands of years ago and the miracle of Purim. But said Rav Shlomo we need that now when we have enemies who threaten us. But the Mashiach, when Mashiach comes, and it's a time of peace and tranquility and prosperity, we won't need it. And therefore, this aspect of Purim will be gone. Now if you'll say... Well but you don't need to drink that much to be able to set Iran aside for the couple hours. I guess it's proportional to how much Iran bothers you. If you're so disturbed that you spend the other 364 days a year so bothered by the threat of Iran, you can't stop thinking and davening and working and advocating and lobbying, then you really need to get hammered. If you barely, if Iran is an afterthought for you in your day the rest of the year, then a sip of wine should be good enough to put it on the side for the Purim Sudha now you'll ask as he does and I'll say, how do you celebrate Hanukkah when you think about how do you celebrate Pesach how do you celebrate Sukkot how do you celebrate yeah. how do you celebrate Yisrael B'chol mm-hmm. L'orak B'porim <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to the Simcha of Pesach, of Sukkot, of Shavuos... We're trying to connect to Hashem. The simcha is the joy of being close to Hashem. That joy is not fashtered by the enemies who threaten us. Purim, the joy is a joy of triumphing over our enemies. That joy is fashtered when you think about the enemies and their capacity today. So that's the first suggestion. Why is alcohol connected with Purim? Shlomo Zaman says because... In our status, in our state, we continue to have enemies. The only way that we can find a respite to celebrate for at least a few hours is to drink a little, to put our worries aside, to focus on the past redemption. That's for Shlomo Zaman. The Maral, Rabbi Yud of Prague, in his Orchadosh, his introduction to a Sefer Orchadosh, that deals with this holiday, Source 23, gives us a different reason. The Ma'aral says... Very interestingly. What's the whole theme of Purim? The theme of Purim is the notion of the hidden. That God's hand is behind everything that occurs even when we can't see it explicitly. How many times is Hashem's name mentioned in the Megillah? It is zero. Zero. Hashem's name is never mentioned in the Megillah. Of course we have a tradition that every time it says the word Hamelach it's a reference to the Almighty. But Hashem's name is never explicitly mentioned. And yet, and yet, you don't have to have that keen an eye to read the Megillah and see God's guiding hand to the unfolding of the episode that occurs. What seemingly are coincidences are really are really the Almighty Himself. Purim is a notion that even what I can't see, Hashem is there, that I shouldn't understand and take everything on the surface level. But there's so much that is going on beyond the surface that I can't observe and I can't see and I don't necessarily understand. And so says the Maral, the entire theme of Purim is the recognition, is the concession, is to concede. I don't always understand. Things are not as they seem. That's what happened in the story of Purim and that's how we commemorate Purim. Is the recognition, is the concession, Things are not always as they seem. And therefore, that guides all of the customs, says the Maharal. Why do we dress up on Purim? Because things are not always as they seem. What's on the surface and what's beneath it are not always consistent. Why do we drink on Purim, says the Marao. Because I shouldn't think that with my rational intellectual capacity, I have the ability to analyze everything and always understand everything exactly. No. There are things happening beneath the scene, beneath the surface. <clears> HaKadosh <throat> Baruch Hu is the one responsible behind the scenes to what's happening. So when I drink and I forfeit my own understanding and capacity to understand, I am acknowledging that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not only today, but all the other days of the year as well, is the guiding hand and are not necessarily as I see it. So says the Maral. that's the theme of Purim. That's why it's called Megillas Esther. That's the, the avoda, the goal of Purim. The word Megillah comes from the word Megaleh. What does Megaleh mean? Reveal. To reveal. The avoda of Purim is to be Megala Esther. Esther comes from Anochi Esther, Esther Astir Pani. Shem says, I will hide my face. Esther, Esther is hiddenness. Megillas Esther, to reveal the hidden to recognize that Hashem is really hidden in everything, and even though I don't see it, and even though I don't understand it, Hashem is always hidden. How do I do that? How do I display that, says the Maharal? Costumes. But when I drink, and I forfeit my own intellectual capacity to understand, I am saying that Hashem is the one who's really behind everything, even when I can't understand. That is the Maharal's explanation. The last explanation I want to share with you, the last interpretation, comes from the Rav and this I heard directly from the Rav now when I say I heard it directly from the Rav I never had the privilege of studying with the Rav, I never had the privilege of meeting the Rav, I never had the privilege of being in the same room as the Rav but we are blessed today to have the technology to be able to hear the Rav you can go on, there's a website that's a collection of the Rav shiurim, and you could listen to the Rav, his English is magnificent, and if you understand Yiddish, I understand that his Yiddish is unparalleled but to listen to the Rav his eloquence is, is phenomenal So I heard the Rav say the following. It's actually the opposite of what Rabbi Blau quoted in the name of Rishlom Azam and Arba. Said the Rav, the term simcha, joy, is associated with something. If you look in Chumash, you always find the concept of simcha of joy in connection with Lifnei Hashem. Being before God. Sources 24, 25, 26, 28. Source twenty four. Where do you feel simcha when you come to the Beis Hamikdash? When you come to the Mishkan for the Aliyah LeRegel? Lefne Hashem, when you are before God, that's when you're filled with a sense of simcha. Source twenty five. Usmachtem Hashem yamim. you feel simcha where? Hashem, when you come to the Mishkan, the Beis Hamikdash. Source twenty six. You eat your carbon before God and what do you do? You are when you're in front of Hashem, all you're filled with is a sense of simcha. What according to the Rav is the definition of Simcha? The definition of Simcha is the feeling one feels when one recognizes Hashem runs the world. There is meaning, there is purpose, there is order. Everything that happens to me makes sense. It's not coincidence, it's not random, it's not chance. There is a divine hand who is running the world. And when one feels lufnei Hashem, when one feels in the presence of the Almighty, when one feels there is a Master of the Universe who is in charge, and that all that He does is for good, and that my life Life has meaning and purpose and is not just a string of random coincidence and events but rather it's God's guiding hand when one feels Hashem, they feel a sense of simcha that's why by the way Avelis is nullified for Yontif Yontif there's a mitzvah of simcha Because you would go to the Beis HaMikdash, you would feel in the presence of Hashem, and you'd therefore be filled with Simcha. That no matter what worries and anxieties and stresses I feel when I'm at home and doing work and having the the chaos of life, when I get to the Mishka and the Beis HaMikdash, when I feel I'm before Hashem, everything makes sense. Everything will be okay. And therefore I feel Simcha. But a mourner, it's absolutely incongruous and inconsistent to feel mourning and Simcha at the same time. When you lose a loved one, you feel, where is the Almighty? Where is Hashem? How could this happen to me? And you therefore can't have those feelings at the same time, and therefore avela's mourning is nullified in the face of Yontif when you have to feel simcha. Says the Gemara Chagiga, source 27. Is there weeping in the presence of the Almighty? There is no sadness when you're in front of Hashem. When you're in front of Hashem, when you're in His place, where? The Mishka, the Besam Mikdash. When you're in Hashem's place, you feel this incredible sense of everything will be okay. Everything is alright. Everything makes sense. Therefore, drinking is forbidden when you're in front of Hashem. Because if you have the capacity to feel simcha, if the authentic, genuine, real sense of simcha is the feeling of being before Hashem, how could you possibly turn that in for the counterfeit version of drinking? Source 28. Pasuk in Vayikra. Vay'dabar Hashem al-ar Hashem tells Aaron What happens if you introduce alcohol to the Mishkan or the Beis HaMekdash? What happens if you drink in the presence of Hashem? Misa, death! It's a capital punishment. Because if you have the ability to feel genuine, authentic Simcha, you're not allowed to turn it in and exchange it for a counterfeit version of drinking alcohol. What does all of this have to do with Purim? Said Rabbi Salavechik, so absolutely brilliantly. Why don't we say Halal on Purim? Why don't we say Halal on Purim? Say Halal on Chanukah, Halal on Rosh Chodesh, Halal on Yantef. Why don't we say Halal on Purim? Three reasons are given, the Gemara says. Rabbi Shura Ben Karcha If the Jews who were delivered from slavery in Egypt to freedom sang a song of praise if they went from death to life shouldn't they all the more so sing halal? So we should say halal on Purim Why don't we say halal on Purim? It's a beautiful word by Rav in Pachet Yitzchak that we do say halal on Purim Megillah is halal That when the miracle is revealed, you say the revealed thanks, which is halal. But when the miracle was hidden, you say a hidden thanks, which is to read the Megillah. That's why Rafutner quotes the Me'iri. If you're on a desert island and you have no Megillah, on Purim, you say halal. Interesting. But that's not the Gemara doesn't give that answer. The Gemara says, why don't you say halal? So the Gemara says, three answers. One is... We were outside of Eretz Yisrael. The second answer is, Kriyasa Zuhilula, that reading the Megillah is the equivalent of reading Hallel, with Rav interpretation of, consistent with the nature of the miracle. And the third reason is, because, the third paragraph, Rava Amar Bishlam Hashem Paro. Yeah, when they came out of Egypt, they had the ability to say thank you to Hashem. Why? Because now they were entirely servants of Hashem. They were not whatsoever under the sovereignty of a foreign nation. hach el but we, we, true, we were saved in the miracle of Purim, but we're still in Gaulis, we're still in the exile. We're still subject to the UN's condemnations and the will of an American president and the world's attempt to isolate us and delegitimize us. We don't have the freedom the Jewish people had when they left Egypt. So the third answer the Gemara gives of why we do not say halal today on Purim is Akate avde achashverosh anon. We are still slaves of Achashverosh. We remain in exile. Said the Rav the following. So brilliant. When you have the capacity to feel real simcha, is when when you have a, beis hamikdash. That's when you can't go near wine, because if you have the ability to feel real simcha, stay far away from the counterfeit version. But we, we don't have a beis HaMikdash. We don't have that choice. We don't have that alternative to go to a beis hamikdash and to feel everything's going to be okay. We don't have that ability to go to the beis hamikdash and say everything's going to be all right. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's order, Hashem's running the world. We can't feel that relief of going to the Beis Mikdash and feeling the simcha of being Lifnei Hashem. We're still in exile. Who's the one who said that, said the Rav? Who's the one who gave that answer, the third answer? Look in the bottom of page of Source 29. None other. It's missing? Sorry. It was none other than Rava the same one who said "Chayav there's an obligation to get drunk said Rabbi Salavechik it was the very same Rava who understood that we remain in exile is the one who said that the only way to get through Purim when you think about what's happening in the world today is to have a little something to drink if you were able to come then you could feel real simcha then drinking would be forbidden off limits but because we don't have that choice, we don't have that alternative. The only way to get through the fact that we remain in the exile, with the challenges and the threats that we confront, is chayev inish is to have a drink. Said the Rav, it's not a coincidence that it's the same Rav who says akate avde achashverosh anan, and chayev inish levesume So what we saw is that many understand there remains a mitzvah to drink. It's qualified as to drink very little, enough to take a nap, enough to have a little lachayim, but not to get so out of hand, said the al said the Chavetz Chaim, said the Chayyadam, said the Arizal, said the Yisur Shavoda, said everybody, not to drink so much that you're out of hand. It should be a day that is uplifting, that's inspiring, and that's meaningful. May we once again see the triumph over our Persian enemies and live to see the Geula Shlema Bimhera V'Yamena.